Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts-based intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss an important case working its way through the federal courts that directly impacts the patentability of human genes and potentially many more technologies alleged to be merely derived from products of nature. The case is the Association for Molecular Pathology, et al., versus the United States Patent and Trademark Office, et al., where essentially 20 individuals and institutions representing more than 100,000 doctors and researchers working with lawyers from the Public Patent Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union filed suit against the USPTO, the University of Utah Research Foundation, and Myriad Genetics. Myriad is the exclusive licensee of seven patents with claims directed to isolation of human genes and related diagnostic methods. These genes, um, shorthand referred to as BRCA1 and BRCA2, and methods have been found useful and in fact are used in identifying gene mutations associated with breast and ovarian cancer. Joining me today is my guest, Jeff Hawley. Jeff is the David Rines Professor of Intellectual Property Law at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Among other things, he has been very active at the school, creating and leading its IP amicus clinic. And the school has filed a brief in support of appellant Myriad Genetics. Prior to joining the school's faculty, Jeff was Chief Patent Counsel at Eastman Kodak. He is a former president of the Rochester Intellectual Property Law Association, former president of the Pacific Intellectual Property Association, and former president of the Intellectual Property Owners Association. Welcome to IP Council, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff, this, uh, this case has been uh, gathering quite a bit of press uh, from the New York Times and the legal press as well. Um, can you give us just a little background? How, how did this case come to be? And um, I understand it was uh, filed in uh, Southern District of New York in 2009, and a decision came down earlier this year, um, in March, um, a 150-odd page decision. Um, how, how did it come to be? Well, it, it was a suit that was brought essentially by uh, a large number of, of plaintiffs that are represented by primarily by the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, alleging that uh, uh, isolated gene sequences are not patent-eligible subject matter, uh, under a variety of arguments, including uh, the Constitution uh, and uh, some of the uh, Supreme Court decisions that relate to the patent eligibility of some naturally occurring substances. There were other uh, challenges, uh, also constitutional, uh, that were raised. Uh, the case has a bit of a 
of a very storied and famous history in the sense that uh, the the plaintiff's uh, standing to bring the suit was challenged by the, the Patent Office in Marriott and uh, was a decision earlier this year that uh, they did indeed have standing. Uh, so uh, it went on to then have a decision on, on the summary judgment motions brought by the uh, the plaintiffs uh, and Earlier this year, the, the district court, Southern District of New York, Judge Sweet, uh, came out with a decision saying that isolated uh, gene sequence are not patent-eligible subject matter. Uh, the case was then appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Uh, it's in the midst of briefing as we speak. The, uh, brief, the briefs in support of uh, Myriad uh, have uh, now been filed. And we're waiting for all the briefs uh, on the other side to be filed so that we can uh, then see what uh, all of the arguments are and, and get an idea for what's going to happen next. But the, but the uh, bringing the case, what was the, what was the conflict alleged to be that, um, that allowed plaintiffs to bring the case in the first place? Well, the, conf- uh, the nature of the conflict is, in fact, in, uh, in controversy. The, uh, uh, the conflict... Uh, uh, Myriad alleges that there is no conflict, and therefore the district court doesn't have uh, uh, jurisdiction. Uh, the district court uh, 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 obviously disagreed with that and went ahead with deciding the summary judgment motion. But the, the conflict is that uh, a large uh, number of plaintiffs represented by uh, the American Civil Liberties Union have uh, alleged that the Patents on gene sequences, in particular these gene sequences, uh, stifle innovation and uh, 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 sub uh, the uh, use of these uh, this technology for uh, medical purposes, and that's kind of the over overarching basis for their uh, their complaint. I see. So the judge in the uh, district court, Judge Sweet in uh, Southern District of New York, um, did he did he outright hold that isolated uh, gene sequences are not patentable subject matter? Uh, well, I, I would uh, alter that statement just a little bit. I would uh, 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 be careful to say that that he, uh, although his his language is a little unclear in uh, from place to place. He found that as a matter of law, isolated uh, uh, gene sequences are not patent-eligible subject matter. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, uh, once you overcome that hurdle, there are lots of other portions of the statute that any invention must uh, uh, comply with, including uh, 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 obviousness and u- utility and uh, that must be described adequately uh, in order to for the patentee to be entitled to... Uh, is exclusive right. So this is one of the many different uh, criteria that, that an invention must meet, and it's uh, largely thought of as kind of a uh, an, an initial criteria, a, a threshold issue. Uh, so the the real the the real way to to uh, talk about the question is whether or not isolated or purified, and there's some dispute over those terms. Uh, uh, DNA are patent eligible in the first place, and then you you must go on to determine uh, whether they're they're obvious and whether they're adequately disclosed, et cetera, et cetera. 
That's that's right. In, in reading the uh, 156 page decision, I, I noticed the the um, the phrase uh, a purification of a natural product without more is is not patentable subject matter. Um, kind of a broader um, broader read or or maybe a misread of a Supreme Court precedent. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I see. Yeah, there's a, uh, again, there's there's dispute uh, amongst the parties with regard to exactly what uh, the criteria for the Supreme Court uh, uh, precedents are. Uh, the uh, one of the one of the phrases that's used is uh, is is this term whether or not a uh, isolated material is markedly different from the naturally occurring material. And uh, the district court opinion found that that uh, isolated DNA is not uh, quote markedly different, and therefore uh, is not patent eligible subject matter. Uh, in doing so, the district court found that uh, in their reasoning that isolated DNA is not markedly different because it has. Uh, what it referred to as unique characteristics. In other parts of the opinion, it referred to distinctive characteristics or unique properties uh, such that isolated uh, DNA uh, serves as the physical embodiment of the law of nature. And, of course, uh, the Supreme Court precedents talk about uh, everything under the sun being patent-eligible subject matter, uh, excluding Things like abstract ideas uh, and more particularly laws of nature. So that's uh, kind of the reasoning of the district court. I see. Um, some of the claims of the in, in these seven patents that that were found um, uh, to, to have non-patentable subject matter were were directed to diagnostic methods. How did the district court reason with regard to diagnostic methods? Well, that that gets a little bit uh, a little bit dicey uh, because the. Uh, the decision of the district court was uh, was issued before the Supreme Court uh, issued its decision in Inri Bilski, mm-hmm. and Inri Bilski is uh, is a very uh, famous case these days with respect to the uh, patent eligible uh, subject matter when that subject matter is a method and what are the criteria. And prior to the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit had had announced or established a pretty rigid test with respect to determining whether or not uh, uh, methods were patent eligible subject matter. Uh, that religi- that uh, uh, rigid test is commonly referred to as the machine or transformation test. Uh, the gist of which is that unless the method is uh, carried out by a specific machine or it uh, it involves the transformation of uh, an article to a different state or thing, uh, then uh, uh, it's not a patent-eligible uh, method. Uh, that the Court of Appeals decision was was appealed to the, uh, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, announced that uh, the Court of Appeals decision uh, that this machine or transformation test was the exclusive test was was not correct, uh, and that uh, the the uh, criteria for determining whether a method is patent eligible subject matter is, is in fact quite a little bit broader than 
machine or transformation test. And unfortunately, the, the district court opinion here is, uh, was, was handed out in the interim when the machine or transformation test was still the exclusive one, and so that was the basis of the district court's analysis. I see. Uh, so uh, we're left with now needing to apply the Supreme Court's broader test to, uh, to these facts to see where we come out. I see. Okay. Um, and so, yes, the uh, district court decision came down on March 29th, and the Bilski decision was some um, few months later, um, as I recall. Yeah, I don't recall the exact dates, but uh, clearly, clearly, the district court did not have the benefit of the of the uh, the, the Supreme Court's decision in Bilski. Okay, okay. So, so let's just take a step back because I I think sometimes the the subject matter um, of the isolated genes, the uh, the BRCA one, BRCA BRCA two uh, 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 genes here, maybe some get lost on that. Um, let's let's take a step back and and and, and think about is this. Uh, if this holding is upheld, I mean, would it be limited, um, or what other technologies may be um, affected? Well, that's a that's a concern that some of us have. That uh, uh, and and it's uh, not an uncommon concern. We were very concerned, for example, when the uh, the Court of Appeals announced their Bilski decision on the machine or transformation. That was in the context of a business method. Uh, Claim and everybody was uh, was was talking at least initially that that the uh, machine or transformation test would be limited to uh, situations that involved the business method and and of course that that wasn't the case the concern was real uh, it had uh, begun to be applied to other kinds of uh, of inventions as well and I, I think I'm similarly concerned here that if if the district court's uh, reasoning and analysis is uh, applied literally, uh, then the, uh, their, their reasoning could, could be applied to almost any uh, chemical composition uh, because what they're, what they're essentially saying is that uh, if something has a unique characteristic and this serves as the physical embodiment of a law of nature, well, there's nothing in there that's specific to DNA. And you could uh, you could say virtually any uh, uh, chemical composition has some unique characteristic that other chemical compositions don't have, and the reason that it's useful and does what it does is because it's uh, it's interacting with uh, other uh, uh, things in the environment, and and uh, and the reason that it uh, has its usefulness is because there's a physical uh, uh, law of nature that's being uh, imp- uh, Embodied in that uh, uh, in that unique characteristic, so the the, the broad sweeping language of this decision uh, is of some concern, uh, but the the initial concern is is directed towards uh, the isolated DNA issue. I see. I, I read somewhere that uh, since the uh, well, the Supreme Court uh, precedent that we referred to, I, I believe you're speaking of uh, Diamond v. Chakrabarty uh, in 1980, 81. Um, um, in that 29 or 30 years, there's been, um, I don't know, thousands maybe uh, uh, patents in this, in this space. What, what happens to existing patents and investment if this, if this decision uh, – somewhere uh, I read, I think, uh, over 50,000 patents containing at least one claim directed to a nucleic acid sequence – what what happens to those patents if uh, if this is well? Those, those patents become uh, subject to this uh, this analysis uh, uh, regarding uh, 
whether or not the uh, subject matter has unique characteristics that serve as a physical embodiment uh, of nature, and if so, uh, then those thousands of patents, uh, 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 I won't say are useless, or I won't say are worthless, but uh, certainly their their value has been uh, dramatically decreased, and some would some would argue uh, that that they are indeed worthless. Well, and and from from your experience as well. Uh in-house and, and uh, for a large operation like Eastman Kodak, th- does the incentive, uh, speak from your experience, from, does the incentive of being able to patent things um, kind of promote innovation as um, as um, most of us believe? Is, is that in well, fact the case? Certainly, cer- certainly <laughs> I'm a believer. I've, I've, you know, I've been in this business almost 40 years now. I guess, I guess it has been 40 years now. And uh, I... Uh, talked with uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of inventors, and uh, uh, the incentives that are provided by the patent system are clearly in their mind. Uh, it's I can and I can tell you that it's clearly in the mind of uh, research managers uh, that need to decide where to put resources. Uh, and while it varies from industry to industry, uh, uh, where uh, the the exclusive right that a patent gives is uh, more important in some industries than others. Uh, it's it's certainly one of the things that most research managers, I, I believe, would uh, would tell you that's important in 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 how they allocate resources to projects. Uh, if you take the pharmaceutical industry, for example, they uh, are not interested at all in pursuing uh, uh, large areas of research unless they can recover that uh, investment in some manner. And the manner in which they in, they recover it is when they are lucky enough to get a, a really good hit and and can uh, and can uh, introduce a new pharmaceutical on the market they need to make the money on that one to support the research on the next one so uh, uh, I think uh, you know I'm, I'm a believer in that and if you look at some of the uh, some of the uh, analysis that's taken place since for example diamond versus Chakrabarty which related to the patentability of uh, uh, living subject matter I think you uh be uh, uh I'm pretty convinced anyway that uh that that decision was really one of the uh one of the great uh uh motivators for our entire biotechnology industry and and since that decision uh the United States has really uh become and maintained its leadership and and I think that can be largely attributed to the uh uh, uh the receptiveness on the part of the Supreme Court to the patentability of uh, biologically related uh, subject matter, including living things. Uh, similarly, I think uh, the Supreme Court's decisions in, in with respect to software have been, uh, uh, although not as broad sweeping as the uh, biotechnology area, they still allow for a substantial area for protecting uh, uh, software-related inventions, and I think it, uh, there have been uh, a number of studies that have suggested that all of the parade of horribles that this would kill the software industry, et cetera, et cetera, have not come to pass, and to the contrary, the software industry in the United States is alive and well and thriving. Okay. Well, well thanks for that, Jeff. When we come back after um, a short break, I want to I discuss uh, public policy concerns and, and a few more questions. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, 
Thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back uh, to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by uh, Jeff Hawley, and we're discussing the uh, the hot topic involving the Myriad Genetics um, patent suit and, and and how it's winding its way through the federal uh, courts, and more importantly, uh, the the uh, potential impact of the uh, district courts holding in that case. Uh, Jeff, when we left off, we were discussing the um, uh, kind of the incentive that uh, the patent system has provided um, American industry, particularly particularly pharmaceutical biotechnology, to invest in in um, in research and um, and in other areas, um, and how that's that's had a positive impact in the uh, on the economy. Um, let, let's look at the other side for a moment. What are what are the alleged public policy concerns? of a plaintiff in this case and um, or the many plaintiffs in this case and um, and should they play a role generically in in patent process well yeah that, that's an interesting question because there's there's a, a great deal of the district court brief is devoted towards uh, uh, a discussion of the history of uh, of myriads uh, acquisition of the uh, the patents that we're talking about uh, but more importantly uh, how they have been used and and uh, there's uh, there are allegations on the part of the of the plaintiff that uh, the fact that Myriad uh, had some enforcement activity uh, uh, some ten years ago that this has had a chilling effect. Uh, a, a number of the of the recruited plaintiffs by uh, uh, are individuals who uh, are said to have been been harmed because they couldn't get uh, this the testing using these isolated genes. Uh, there have been some suggestion on the part of the, the plaintiffs that uh, that there's been a, a great deal of uh, negative impact on the uh, uh, that these patents bring to uh, uh, the testing testing using the genes. There's been a suggestion about uh, the effect of what the the funding might be and future research and and, and just a wide variety of uh, of uh, Allegations on the part of the uh, the plaintiffs. Uh, allegations on the other side, on the part of Myriad, uh, are are generally uh, uh, allegations that uh, none of these things are uh, are serious. That uh, that Myriad has been uh, quite willing to to work with people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's there's uh, the issue has been joined on the on the public policy issues uh, quite clearly. Uh, but the uh, the the district court's opinion uh, discusses all these things uh, quite extensively. Uh, if if you look at the Supreme Court decisions, however, and also uh, recent decisions of the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, uh, they're uh, they're pretty clear that this kind of policy uh, discussion uh, 
really has uh, uh, not a lot of relevance with respect to whether or not something is patent-eligible subject matter. Uh, in uh, Diamond versus Chakrabarty, for example, the case we discussed on, on whether or not uh, living subject matter should be patent-eligible uh, or should be uh, somehow excluded because it's living subject matter, the, uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, was faced with a lot of uh, amicus briefs suggesting that, uh, that if they allowed the patenting of uh, living things, that there would be this uh, tremendous parade of horribles uh, uh, that would happen and, and uh, human disease and uh, lack of progress in the art and, and uh, uh, similar kinds of uh, policy uh, issues that are, are now raised by the plaintiffs uh, in uh, the uh, district court case. Uh, the Supreme Court was pretty clear that uh, they really didn't have the expertise to do that, that this was a, um, a matter that was for Congress to resolve, not to be resolved in, in, the, uh, in the courts, uh, and that they uh, were required to uh, interpret the uh, statute as they found it. Uh, they found that it didn't have any limitations on uh, patent-eligible subject matter because of this uh, unique characteristic that something was living uh, and therefore dismissed the, 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 the public policy issues uh, uh, for those reasons. Similarly, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit has been faced with uh, that, that issue uh, 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 from time to time. Probably the most recent one was uh, the case of Henry Fisher, which uh, which had to do with some uh, biological material, uh, and uh, were again faced with a number of amicus briefs, which su suggested that uh, if uh, if the uh, claims had, uh, were allowed as they then stood, uh, that uh, there would be this parade of horribles of the all kinds of terrible things that would happen, and and like the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals said this is not the kind of thing that. Uh, uh, that we should be considering. We take the statute as we find it, and we leave it up to Congress to make these policy uh, decisions. Okay, and and there are other um, there are other parts of the patent statute that could be kind of uh, checks and balance to to make sure that uh, inappropriate subject matter does in fact not become patented. But as far as patent eligibility goes, uh, you're 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 saying the courts have not. Um, um, kind of use the policy concern to to weigh in in that regard. Well, yeah, absolutely. Even even in Henry Fisher, Henry Fisher was uh, was uh, is widely regarded as a, a case uh, where the question was patent eligibility under Section 101 of the statute. Uh, the Court of Appeals found that the uh, biological material that was uh, at issue there was not patent eligible subject matter, but it was because the uh, applicant or the the patentee I can't remember if it was an applicant or a patentee uh, had not uh, established any uh, concrete and uh, uh, immediate use for the biological materials. Uh, that's not an issue in the myriad case. The uh, biological, the isolated uh, uh, DNA is. Uh, uh, admitted by or, or or acknowledged by both parties uh, as being useful material, so you don't have the situation uh, that you had in in Re Fisher, uh, uh, but nevertheless the uh, 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 the there are uh, a lot of other different criteria, including usefulness under 101 itself, 
uh, that, uh, that every, uh, patent, uh, patent invention, uh, or any patent, uh, that you're seeking needs to, needs to meet. Okay. And, and, and thinking myself through, um, um, where public policy concerns had, had perhaps played a role in in uh, impacting the uh, the patent statute, I thought to I thought about the uh, medical use claims uh, where there were there was in fact uh, lobbying in Congress in the early '90s, I believe, and the uh, patent statute was was amended to to limit damages uh, in that regard. But I don't believe they they spoke to patentability in that in that realm. Can you think of anything else? Uh, uh, well. Uh the uh the 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 patent eligibility of uh medical uh treatment uh types of claims uh, has been as you as you point out was of some uh controversy a number of years ago uh and uh is not implicated here in the myriad case at all but uh it is kind of interesting uh where there was a there was a fair amount of uh of uh consternation regarding uh what would happen if if the patent office continued to allow claims to to medical treatment. In other words, things like uh, surgical procedures that were performed by a surgeon and 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 stopping uh, and and giving an exclusive right to somebody on a, on some kind of technique for for tying a suture, for example, would uh, would would just not be the right thing to do. So Congress did did uh, get involved in that for for a period of time. Uh, and I, I, I'd have to go back and do some research on the details, but one of the interesting things that they did was they, uh, uh, there was a period of time, for example, where they, uh, uh, decided the, you, we weren't going to fund that kind of thing. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, so, uh, but that, that lasted only a few years and, uh, of interest is that, uh, uh, there, there continue to be patents that issue that, uh, that, that touch in some way or another on, uh, methods for medical treatment, usually in in the context of uh, a, a patent that relates to some device that uh, is used in that medical treatment. But uh, so there 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 is some some uh, some room to maneuver for uh, patentees to get some kind of claims to that. I see. Um, Jeff, as we wind down, I, 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 we, we spoke just very briefly about the standing issue uh, where appellant, uh, in appellant's brief, uh, they emphasized that uh, plaintiff didn't even have standing to bring, uh, to bring the case. There was no, they allege, no adverse legal interest. And you, you explained that. They also did, uh, I noticed, um, the ACLU asked that the CAFC chief judge Rader be recused. Can you, can you just briefly uh, explain what they were thinking there, or, or or the reason they asked Chief Judge Rader to be recused. Yeah, I did. I did not go back and look at the the uh, statements that Judge Rader was was alleged, was was said to have made. But uh, my recollection is that uh, that Judge Rader uh, made some kind of a, a speech to a uh, to an organization, whether it be a legal or a professional organization, of some 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 uh, description. That uh, uh, indicated his uh, predisposition to the broad uh, uh, interpretation of 101 to include uh, biological materials. Uh, and, and again, I don't know the specific details, but uh, but uh, the allegation is that that uh, that is evidence of a bias in this case, and that therefore Judge Rader should recuse himself. Uh, okay. We don't really know what's going to happen with that at this point. Right. Uh, 
we don't know what the uh, what, uh, a, a number of things. Uh, uh, most of the cases that are decided by the the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit are decided by three judge panels. Uh, we, we don't know uh, which three judges have been assigned to this case. Uh, it, it could very well be that uh, this is an important enough case that the Court of Appeals decides at some point to take it up en banc, which is, means that every judge would be involved, and uh, we would have to guess as to as to whether there might be other uh, uh, judges who have said things in the past that that may uh, be alleged to be uh, uh, evidence of bias. So it'll, it'll, it'll be an interesting story to watch. Yeah, certainly hotly contested. I noticed the uh, Department of Justice also filed a brief in this case, and I, I won't ask you to weigh in on that, but I, but I will. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I will on the, um, as to predictions and, and uh, you know, with you, all your experience, uh, what should counsel do in, in your opinion, um, and, and, and of course, your predictions specifically in this case. But what should counsel do uh, going forward um, if, if, if this markedly different characteristics uh, test becomes, becomes the, uh, the, uh, the test? Um, how, how should counsel, in-house counsel or private practitioners working in this space or related spaces, how, how should we respond? And, and what well, are your first, predictions for this specific case? I guess yeah. there, there are a couple of things. How do you, how do you respond today? Uh, quite frankly, I would not uh, change my practice at all at, uh, today. If I had an inventor come into my office and say, I've got a, a uh, new invention on an isolated uh, gene sequence, uh, I've got the utility, I can describe it adequately, it's unobvious, uh, uh, it's got uh, it's got uses well beyond uh, the uses that uh, uh, are found for this material in nature, uh, which is the kind of the markedly different standard. Uh, I would uh, I would go ahead and and uh, uh, write the case up, uh, file it, and uh, and see what happens as time goes forward. Obviously, when the court of appeals uh, makes its decision. Uh, then uh, we will have a little bit more guidance, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, as to what constitutes uh, patent-eligible subject matter in the space of uh, isolated genes. Uh, and we can uh, uh, take a look at that language and see if it uh, should alter our, our uh, practice at all. Um, most people are assuming that this case will eventually find its way to the, the uh, Supreme Court. Although uh, I'm a little skeptical of that, uh, I think if the uh, Court of Appeals uh, does a, a good job in in writing their opinion, either accepting the the, uh, the plaintiff's position or or accepting the uh, uh, the status quo, uh, that uh, uh, the Supreme Court may may not take it up. Uh, uh, they've taken up a lot of cases already in the past five years or so. They may be getting tired of patent cases. I don't know. <laughs> uh, my prediction on this, though, uh, and this, uh, like all of my remarks today, is uh, kind of my own personal opinion. Uh, I believe that uh, that the challenge to the jurisdictional uh, standing of the plaintiffs is is likely to be successful. So uh, we may not know at the end of this whether uh, there's any change in the patent eligibility of uh, uh, isolated gene sequence because. Uh, uh, the uh, Court of Appeals might very well uh, uh, agree with the uh, with Myriad in this case that the plaintiffs don't have standing to sue. Uh, the law with respect to standing has changed uh, for declaratory judgment actions uh, 
in patent cases in the last few years. It has certainly uh, uh, been uh, broadened out since uh, in those five years, but I, I still don't believe that it's been broadened uh, to the extent that uh, the, the plaintiffs in this case and the uh, district court uh, judge in this case uh, have uh, have uh, have have found so uh my my expectation is that the court of appeals may uh may uh, uh punt on the uh patent eligibility of the isolated genes issue and just decide it on the jurisdictional issue and in which case we're uh, left with uh, another few years of waiting for the next case to come up to uh, test this uh, this uh, situation. So then uh, it would be uh, useful uh, to, to perhaps be creative as you're preparing those patent applications or planning those strategies to perhaps include kit claims or uh, uh, keeping an eye on your diagnostic methods claims to take into account the recent uh, Bilski decision uh, to just to just uh, consider the possibilities that the the, uh, uh, the plaintiff in this case, um, plaintiff's counsel in this case, uh, there, there's going to be other instances, whether it's this one or another one. Um, there's pressure. Well, I, 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 I certainly assume that the, the plaintiffs in this case and the, and the, and the plaintiff's attorneys, if, if they're not successful here, will, will look for a uh, situation where there is a, uh, a riper controversy or, or a, uh, a, more suitable justiciable controversy over over a uh, uh, over a gene patent, and we'll uh, uh, we'll weigh in on that, and and uh, and uh, off we go again to to a district court case, and and uh, it'll wind its way up to the court of appeals again, etc. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's clearly going to happen, even if the court of appeals uh, bounces this case for jurisdictional reasons. Uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, patent attorneys need to continue to be creative in in writing their patent applications. Uh, from a from a defendant side, uh, uh, if you're if you are uh, being accused of infringement of a gene patent, I would say that uh, that this is a, uh, the the best reasoning that uh, you could hope for so far. And uh, uh, and use it, and uh, maybe your case will be the one that uh, uh, that the court of appeals doesn't bounce for jurisdictional reasons. Okay. So yeah, it's it's going to be an exciting time for for patent attorneys, and uh, they need to continue to hone their uh, claim drafting skills and and uh, creatively think about ways that they can claim their clients' inventions. Yep, seems to be coming from all sides these days. I uh, I hope to have you back once the uh, CAFC does decide on on this uh, on this case. Uh, well, that uh, that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Thank you, Jeff Hawley. Remember, you could find You're out quite <laughs> you can find out uh, uh, about all our shows on the LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. Thanks again, Jeff, for joining me today. If someone wants uh, more information on this topic, how can they reach you and or perhaps get a copy of the school's brief? Uh, Jeff.Hawley at law.unh.edu. And of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at plando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council. Have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, talking law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.